we really have two different social worlds as concerns guns. You know, we have people for whom guns will never be a problem, and we have people for whom their only experience of guns is as a problem. If we're going to have this conversation about guns, let's do it from a position of respect and understanding. And if you're going to have a conversation that starts off, let me explain to you, you ignorant rednecks, why everything you believe about guns is wrong. I'm not the world's greatest conversationalist, but even I know that's not how you start a good talk. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Last episode, we looked at how our history and culture has affected how Americans use and regulate guns. This episode, we're going to look at gun culture in America today. We're going to speak with people who own them, collect them, and shoot them. We're going to talk to people whose minds have changed about guns, some in ways you might expect, and some in ways you might not. I'm David Yamani. I'm a professor of sociology at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. David Yamani studies gun culture in America. He'll be one of our main guides in this episode, not just because he studies gun culture, but also because he's a gun owner and a gun enthusiast himself. But for all of his familiarity with guns, David didn't actually hold one until he was an adult. Growing up, guns weren't part of his world. So I grew up in what I like to characterize as a blue bubble outside the San Francisco Bay Area. Went to UC Berkeley as an undergraduate, so the blue bubble obviously followed me fairly closely. Then I went to graduate school at the Berkeley of the Midwest and the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, And even in places like Wisconsin where there's clearly a strong tradition of hunting, because I was in Madison, not in the outlying areas of the state, I managed to successfully avoid firearms through my seven years of graduate study. But in 2005, he moved to North Carolina, and one day outside of Winston-Salem. So I was driving down the interstate, just looking out the window at this field, and I noticed this wooden structure, and I commented that I thought it was interesting that someone had built this wooden structure. I thought it was maybe a treehouse or something out in the middle of the field. And my girlfriend at the time, soon to be wife, just kind of thought I was one of the dumbest human beings she'd ever met because it was obviously a deer stand. And, you know, for her, having grown up outside of Winston-Salem in that rural area, everybody knows, you know, what a deer stand is and that people hunt. To David, it was a wake-up call. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where if you have never heard of a word and then someone uses the word, then you see the word all over. I started noticing quarterly gun shows, gun shops, and gun ranges. David started to notice that in his community in North Carolina... Signs on street corners advertising concealed carry classes. Guns were everywhere. And then just talking to some of the people I play tennis with about guns and coming to find out that one of them has rifles that were handed down to them. One of them has a couple of pistols in their basement that they brought with them through life. The normality of guns struck me, that it wasn't something that was frightening, it wasn't something that was scandalous, that it was just a normal part of life. After a while, David realized something. Uh, I was actually very afraid of guns that I thought I need to know how guns work in order to make them safe 
if I were to ever come across a gun. So I arranged through a friend to go out and try shooting a 9mm pistol with a gun trainer for the North Carolina Highway Patrol. And he gave me some very basic instruction on how to hold the gun and how to stand and how to pull the trigger. Uh, And about five shots into that experience, I found myself having a good time and being challenged to try to, you know, put the hole in the target where I was aiming. And, you know, from there, I became much more interested in guns as a personal hobby, I guess. But it wasn't just his personal interest that drew him to studying the topic. It was also that he'd seen how guns were often studied in academic settings. He felt like there was a disconnect between how researchers viewed the topic and how Americans who own and use guns did. I would tell my sociologist colleagues that I was studying American gun culture, and they would typically respond, that's great, somebody needs to be doing more work on gun violence. So that connection is very natural in the sociological mind, but my own experience was of people who were law-abiding legal gun owners who used guns for uh, fun and for protection. The study of gun culture is the study of those people, the people for whom guns are a natural and normal part of social life, uh, and most of whom will never have any negative outcome associated with their own firearms or in their own lives. Put another way, There's 70 to 80 million gun owners in the United States and 300 million guns. And in any given year, we're talking about problems with guns that are more in the range of the tens of thousands. So, again, most people who are gun owners will never have a problem in terms of crime or any sort of physical injury or death uh, as a result of guns. And yet the entire social scientific approach to the study of guns begins with those negative outcomes. If we want accurate, nuanced research about guns, David felt, we need to study all of gun culture, not just the instances when it's illegal or violent. Guns gone wrong. So let's dive into it. What are the different cultures of gun owners that David and other researchers have found? Really, there are a variety of subcultures within American gun culture, and those would include people who are hunters, people who are sort of recreational target or sport shooters, and people who are collectors. Those are sort of historically the three main subcultures. One person who can speak to all three is Kevin Creighton. My name is Kevin Creighton, and I am, in order of inverse importance, an online marketing person, a writer, a father to two sons, husband to my wife, and a Christian servant of the king. He's also a gun owner. He hunts, collects, and shoots for sport. And unlike David, he's been around guns since he was a kid. I spent my summers on my farm working with my uncles. You know, on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, there's not a whole lot to do when you're you know, 13 years old. You're not going to go drive yourself into town. You know, you grab a 22 rifle and you go, you know, clean out a field of gophers. You know, if it's, the ducks are flying overhead and it's in season, you take a couple of those for Sunday dinner. I mean, yeah, part of it was recreational, part of it was utilitarian, part of it was like, wow, I can't believe you made that shot. It was just what you did. Kevin didn't even have to use them to admire them. And as a piece of mechanical engineering, they're absolutely fascinating. 
ever taken one apart, some of these are literally built like a Swiss watch. Kevin could talk about guns for a long time. Bed, semi-automatic that fired the 223 round. You had Beretta AR-70s, rounds. you had FNFNCs, you had a whole bunch of different other guns. They were all old-school Mauser C96, the classic World War I villain bad guy gun. It has one screw in it, and that's used to attach the grip onto the gun. Kevin actually grew up in Canada. When he was 19, he moved to Arizona with his family. Two things happened when he first moved to the States that started to change the way he viewed guns. The first had to do with being exposed to a whole new type of gun ownership. I got a job working retail. I'm standing behind the counter, and this guy walks into the shop, and he's got a classic Colt Peacemaker in a, quite honestly, a nice leather holster strapped to his waist. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm not in Canada anymore, am I? Because to me, a handgun was something you only saw on the hips of a policeman or in a museum. You know, I grew up with, you know, 22 rifles and deer rifles and shotguns, but handguns never happened. That was incident number one. Incident number two happened at about the same time. Uh, the church that I was going to had a, a college group that I was attending, and uh, we decided to go on a camping trip up to the rim country of Arizona. About an hour after everybody went to sleep, the campground next to us started up a really big bonfire, and they started shooting shotguns in the air. And I thought to myself, if those guys decided to come over and do us harm, we had a hatchet. That never entered my head up until then, that the dangers of the world could possibly affect me directly. For Kevin, guns stopped being just pieces of art to admire or a way to pass the time. They were tools for self-defense. David actually had a similar experience. One of my neighbors was in a physical confrontation with a man. She was trying to prevent the guy from getting into her car from the driver's side. Uh, and so I stepped over to ask if everything was okay, and the person who was trying to get into the car sort of gave me uh, a hard look and told me just to mind my own damn business that it was his girlfriend. You know, it was a, a very disturbing moment for me at the time because I had my kids with me, and, you know, I sort of realized that I was bringing them into a situation that I didn't have any good solution for if it had escalated. So we just kind of moved on into our apartment. And then the next afternoon, really, the woman showed up frantically pounding on our apartment door and had said that the, the man she was in the confrontation with earlier had threatened her with a knife and stolen her phone and car. And so that was something, again, that it didn't immediately make me think, oh, I should go to the gun store and buy a gun but in combination with my sensitivity to the fact that normal people do own firearms for various reasons, shooting the, a gun for the first time and you know realizing that that was actually something that was pretty fun and interesting. And then I started putting the pieces together of really realizing, you know, had that moment escalated, but that I really had no reasonable solutions to those problems. So from there, I went ahead and took the North Carolina concealed carry course and got my concealed carry permit, which I've had for the past seven years. This evolution for Kevin and David, it actually kind of mirrors an evolution that's occurred in our entire country. Here's David again. The center of gravity of American gun culture has moved toward self-defense, but there still remains a vibrant, if smaller, uh, hunting subculture and collecting subculture and recreational shooting subculture. The most recent evolution of American gun culture puts self-defense much more at the center. According to David and others, in the 20th century, up through the 1960s, 
hunting and recreation were the primary types of gun culture. In the 1960s was a very outdoorsy time in American history. So if you look at the number of people who were fishing and the number of people who had RVs and did outdoor activities in general increased. And so I think hunting was part of that boom as well. But then... Coming out of the 1960s, you have uh, a great deal of social disorder, a rising crime rate, and so a lot of the fear that's associated with that. High-profile assassinations gripped the country. Violence was entering the mainstream in ways it hadn't in decades, and at the same time... You also have the uh, Gun Control Act of 1968, which really lights a fire under gun owners, recognizing that some of the rights that they historically enjoyed might go away. Just as people were starting to think of guns more as tools for their safety, the government began to restrict them. It galvanized gun owners. In his academic research, David's tracked this change in a pretty interesting way. So I needed to find a common metric over time, and I decided to look at the advertising that was done in the American Rifleman magazine, which is the official magazine of the National Rifle Association, because it's been published continuously for over 100 years. So I looked at 100 years of advertising in the American Rifleman, looking at the themes in the advertisements for gun and associated gear, and found that there had, in fact, been a shift away from hunting and recreational target shooting and collecting toward a gun culture focused on self-defense and concealed carry. And that change started to take place in the 1960s or so into the 1970s, surely, and sort of crossed over in just the last few years so that now you're much more likely to see advertising for guns for self-defense and concealed carry than you are to see advertising for guns for uh, hunting or sport shooting. What David and others have noticed, gun culture has transformed dramatically in the last few decades, and gun enthusiasts are more ardent than ever before. The time period that we're living in really is quite remarkable for that liberalization of carry laws and, of course, obviously also the new interpretation of the Second Amendment and the Heller decision. You know, I think that we're living in a very different time compared to the, the majority of American history as concerns the right for individuals to keep and carry firearms for self-defense. It's probably unrealistic to think this culture of self-defense will just go away. Given that, how do we make sure guns are still used safely and legally? We could turn to a different gun subculture for answers, a bedrock for American values, a group that's always thought about guns as tools, the military and our veterans. Chris Marvin is a former Army officer, helicopter pilot, and combat veteran of the war in Afghanistan. And military service, it runs in his blood. My great-grandfather served in World War One. I. I had two grandfathers in World War II. My father was in Vietnam. And my military family history actually goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Chris was injured in a helicopter crash in 2004. Since then, he's become a strong advocate on a wide range of veterans' issues. Chris thinks the military has a lot to teach us civilians about how to use guns safely and responsibly. If the civilian gun culture could even begin to align itself with military gun culture, then we would see a marked decrease in gun violence in this country. If we focused only on the three major tenets of, of military gun culture, which are safety, training, and accountability, 
And we passed certain laws that allowed for civilian gun culture to embrace safety always, training always, and accountability for your weapons. What we would have is a society where guns were allowed, but they're in the hands of the right people at the right time for the right purposes. So let's look at those three elements. First, safety and training. Obviously, to use a gun in the military, you go through a lot of training. You're also tested and vetted, a background check, if you will. To many veterans, these are no-brainers when it comes to owning and using firearms. One of the most interesting experiences I've had in my work is talking to veterans who feel like they are staunch pro-gun advocates in their civilian or post-military capacity. And you'll talk to them and, and you'll understand why they're pro-gun advocates is because they have a lot of experience and a lot of training with a firearm. And for many of them, a firearm was um, part of their identity. And so they justifiably have this relationship with firearms that they want to continue uh, in their post-military life. In a sense, for a veteran, giving up a firearm would be like me as a doctor giving up the prescription pad. It doesn't take long, though, to explain to them that while they may have purchased the firearm from an authorized gun dealer, uh, they may store it safely, they may use it exclusively at the range, uh, or they may have other weapons that they use for hunting, and they go about their gun ownership in a very a methodical, safe way, their next door neighbor doesn't have to do any of that. And they'll say, yes, 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 sure he does. He has to do exactly what I did, you know, training and safety and accountability, all the things that I did to get to get the firearm. Like, no, you can go to a gun show and without a background check, uh, make a person to person purchase and bring his gun home, a gun that he never used before, has never been to the range with, doesn't know the parts, doesn't know how to take it apart or clean it or whatever. And all of a sudden the veteran says, well, that's stupid. Why shouldn't he have to go through all the things that I went through? I mean, maybe even not the military training, but all the rest of the stuff, just to, to get a, a weapon in his hands as a civilian, why shouldn't he have to go through that? And now what you have is you have a, a gun owner who's a veteran, who has a lot of experience, and who's all of a sudden saying, well, I'm gonna advocate for common sense gun laws because everybody should do it the right way. Another key aspect of, quote, doing it the right way, accountability. In the military, if you lose one bullet, one piece of ammunition, one shell casing, people will scour the range until they find it. If somebody lost a weapon on a military base, a, a handgun, we'll say, that went missing, the base would essentially shut down until it was found because it is so important that the military knows where every single firearm, every single weapon they own, uh, where it is and who has it at what time and to make sure that that's in the right place at the right time and the right hands. We don't come anywhere close to doing that in, in civilian culture. This lack of accountability, it's one of the most devastating aspects of gun violence in America. When you look inside a home, you know, most of the gun violence that we're talking about, uh, the, the, the deaths that occur aren't occurring in mass shootings, they're not occurring from automatic weapons. You know, at some point we have to be, as Americans, if we value human life the way we claim to, uh, we have to be accountable to the individual that possessed that firearm originally and failed to store it safely. And then that's one of hundreds of examples of how, you know, nearly a hundred people every day are dying of gun violence in this country. Chris has found that folks from across the political spectrum are interested in what he and other veterans have to say about guns. It's obviously wishful thinking to sort of think like this, but you know, we have 
21 million American veterans, give or take. And if all of us had a conversation with somebody about what gun violence prevention and gun safety means to us uh, in the context of our military training, you'd have 21 million non-veterans who are better educated in how to deal with their own firearms. Um, and it wouldn't take long for us to kind of reach a lot of people who would make our communities safer and really reduce the numbers of gun violence incidents in this country significantly. And how does Chris use firearms in his post-combat life? It might surprise you. I choose not to own weapons because of the experiences that I've had um, in training and in combat. You know, I don't have any desire for the rest of my life to take a human life. If somebody comes into my home and I need to protect my family, then, you know, I'd prefer to defend my family with a Louisville Slugger. But that's my personal choice. And by the way, I store that Louisville Slugger very safely. I didn't have to have a background check to get it, but if I had, I would have gotten one. You know, I, I respect the rights that, that anybody has to own a firearm as long as they're doing it safely and accountably. And they should, they should respect, you know, my opinion as a veteran to not own one. And many gun owners, including the ones we've talked to in this episode, agree that responsibility, training, and accountability should be encouraged among gun owners. As Kevin puts it, Concealed carry is America's martial arts. But in a dojo, you've got that dedicated model of I'm a white belt, I'm a brown belt, I'm a purple belt, I'm a black belt. That ethos hasn't penetrated into the firearms community yet. It's slowly getting there. The, the really good firearms trainers, the, one that I, the ones that I work with, the ones I spent the weekend with, uh, early this month up a tactical conference, take hours and hours and hours of training from firearms, other firearms instructors, in order to teach their students better. They are the exception, not the rule. David, too, has experienced the weight and responsibility of being a gun owner. So the interesting thing is uh, sort of changing mindset that goes along with being a self-defense gun owner that ironically makes it so that the gun isn't the first solution to every problem that you encounter. And I think that to the extent that gun owners who have concealed carry licenses increasingly think in that manner, then you should see fewer and fewer issues of mutual escalation. But I think that you know overall, we don't hear very many stories of legal concealed carriers doing those sorts of things. And in fact, they tend to be quite law-abiding uh, when they are carrying their firearms in public. The responsibility of owning a gun is literally the most adult decision you're ever going to make in your life because you have decided that it is you yourself that is going to be the first responder to a violent incident that might cost you your life. So it is literally you taking your life in your own hands. <laughs> you know, in the words of Marty McFly, that's heavy. Reporting this series and talking with folks like David and Kevin, I decided to familiarize myself with guns and shooting, but not because they made it sound like a fun hobby. I believe that anybody who is having a public discussion about gun violence prevention should have some experience with firearms. But, you know, when we're talking about policymakers or people who influence policy, I mean, the, the fact that they've at least held a gun in their hands, uh, they know how it feels and, and what it's like to go to a range and understand uh, the training and safety that's really should be such a part of, of gun culture, that's probably enough. So one weekend, I took a six hour long intro to handguns course. We were taught basic handgun anatomy. We learned about single action, double action, and striker action handguns, center fire and rim fire cartridges, revolvers, and semi-automatics. I got hands-on training on the range, learning how to load and unload, stance, grip, sight alignment, and trigger control. I 
I have to admit, it was kind of fun to shoot a gun, kind of in the same way that it's fun to go to the batting cages, shoot pool, or bowl. Many gun owners take guns very seriously, and many of them do think firearms should be regulated. As Chris puts it, background checks are something that have broad, broad support. And this is not a question, right? This is not a, a question of whether or not Americans believe in this. 94 or 5 or something like that percent of Americans believe in universal background checks, and that includes three quarters of uh, NRA members believe that we should have these checks. And the reason is because those NRA members went through those background checks themselves and got those guns. So why can't we find more common ground when it comes to policies? One of the biggest reasons, a lack of trust. Many gun owners don't feel respected by those who want to regulate guns. And many gun safety advocates don't trust that gun owners will use them safely and responsibly. We really have two different social worlds as concerns guns. You know, we have people for whom guns will never be a problem. And we have people for whom their only experience of guns is as a problem. These two worlds rarely interact and don't understand each other. As a result, they have trouble talking to each other. One of the problems with stigmatizing gun owners is that it makes it so they will not feel themselves part of a solution to a problem that they also see as a problem. It's hard to approach even something that seems like a very simple solution like universal background checks when there are people who feel like that's just a kind of Trojan horse to get a bunch of other more penal sorts of regulations in place. And when they see some of the people who are bringing forward those proposals as looking down on them, there's not a level of trust there for people to say, okay, I can see that you are bringing that proposal forward in an honest and genuine way. That R word there, that respect, is just missing so much from this whole conversation about guns that we're having. So how do we establish that respect and that trust? One thing Chris, Kevin, David, and many others believe may help if gun safety advocates would take a step back and try to learn about the complicated, nuanced culture of guns in America. While it might be good to know how to fire a gun, you don't have to become some sort of firearms expert to have an informed, respectful conversation. In fact, just connecting with responsible, law-abiding gun owners might be the first step. After all, it was the first step for David, it happened when he met his future wife. She's one of those stereotypical people who went to a rural high school and the boys had gun racks with guns in their trucks that they parked in the student parking lot. So that was very much a normal part of her life. Uh, and then she was in the Coast Guard for a number of years. And so she carried a service pistol with her on a daily basis. Seeing someone who I liked, who I thought was a normal person, who also thought that guns were normal and sane, really helped to convert me to the idea that it's not just homicidal maniacs and deviants who use these things, that there's actually this whole other world. There are still two worlds when it comes to guns, and there's something that makes understanding gun violence even more challenging. The line dividing those two worlds isn't always so clear. In our next few episodes, we'll examine how someone's identity, especially their race and gender, can influence why they own guns, how they use them, and what rights they have when it comes to guns. 
Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Dan Richards and me. Our theme music is by Alan Best. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.